Good morning, dear friends. You may be seated. Please be seated. Let me sort myself out here a minute. Pastor, can you help us with the slide? Amen. So let me um, let me set up the discussion as you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. That'll be our text this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And this will be my last foundations class with you. Uh, I am passing the opportunity on to someone else. Uh, so I can increase my support for the Little People Sunday School. And we really want to uh, grow that and um, help your children uh, and really support you as parents. And so I'll be turning some more of my attention there. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed it. <laughs> if not, it's over. Thank God it's over. Uh, this morning's subject has always held a great deal of urgency for me. So particularly under the circumstances, and one, that urgency arises from the fact that I want for you as a spouse, as a parent, as a leader, a minister, what I want for myself. And that is, I want people to believe what I say. Right? I want them to be on their edge of seat invested in what I say. Right? I want my loved ones and my stakeholders to take me seriously and trust that what I say is current and relevant and useful, right? I want them to believe and trust that what I am saying has been carefully thought through and is worthy of their consideration. Not because I'm dad, not because I'm Brother Krantz, but because they trust that I am serious, minded, seriously minded about what will help them. Right, I want them to be thoughtful about what I say when I'm no longer around. Right, when, it, when they have to make a decision, I want them to think to themselves, what did dad say? Right, that's what I want for you, because that's what I want for myself. And then also, I, I, uh, I, I, er, the urgency comes from a lifetime of watching the consequences of bad ideas. Right, even little, even little ideas over the lifetime of a church, over a family, over a marriage, over a parentage can lead to such profoundly bad outcomes. And so my heart is heavy, very saddened, and really this morning, actually, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm really subdued because I, I have an urgency about stopping that cycle and, and, and at least slowing that cycle down and uh, enabling people and parents and leaders and spouses and ministers to, to uh, be successful at learning and constructing sound counsel. And so we've talked about it several times, right? Uh, you may remember our recent class, Engaging the Scriptures to Learn. So I've talked about this one. Today I'll just be adding a few more bricks. That is the kind of the analogy I'll be using with. I'm just adding a few bricks to your house of learning. Similarity to my comments of prayer, please just read the Bible. If nothing else, just please read it every day. Right? Get your hand on a book. Read the book every day. That will help you immensely. And then hopefully uh, what I offer today will, will bring some clarity uh, to your enterprise. Now Ecclesiastes 12 verse 9 says, Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he, sought the, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed. Notice what he did. He paid attention to what he was doing and he sought out. And he said in order. Did you notice what he did? 
Like first he paid attention to what he was doing, and then he sought it out, and then he set in order uh, Proverbs. And the, the preacher sought to find out acceptable words. And that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the master of assemblies. And let me remind you, everyone is in the preaching business. Because as soon as they ask you, Sister Jennifer, what you think, you have the microphone and the platform. And it, within 30 seconds, they will have taken you seriously or they will have dismissed what you said. And we always, Brother Cleaner, always, always, did we pay attention? Did we seek it out? Did we put in order something to say? Pastor, would you pray for us? Amen. So let me remind you of two necessary enablers. Uh, we visited these last week, uh, and these are really important. Partnership of the Holy Spirit is the first enabler. You cannot know some things without it. You absolutely need it. Uh, not because it's special, but because I am incredibly backwards and behind. Right? Just miss, don't misunderstand that. God is always great and always good. Ron is always wrong and always bad. So I can't forget that. I need the Holy Spirit to help me. Right? And secondly is holy curiosity. Nobody gets fed that's not hungry. Right? The old classic. You got to knock on the door for it to open. Right? If you don't know, it, well, let me do it this way because I don't want to be condemning. If I don't know, it's my fault. Right? If I don't know how to be a good husband, if I don't know how to be a good parent, if I don't know how to preach a good sermon, it's my fault. It's not the book's fault. It's not the system's fault. And it's not the Holy Ghost's fault. It's my fault. Uh, and everybody said amen. Pastor, next slide, please. Now, um, the first brick I want to add is clarify that we are called to be learners, right? There's a lot of support for that. As you follow along in your handouts, you'll see some of the evidence there. Uh, we are called to this. We are called to this. I want to make sure you understand that, right? And a necessary feature of this calling requires we identify ways to measure learning. Now, that just should come as self-evident, right? Uh, qualitative measures are the preferred approach. These are things that look for evidence that people are growing in their own discipleship. That's kind of what we're looking for. How did they grow? How much did they grow? Is it evidence that they grow? Do you recognize growth edges? Are they different? Are they handling things differently? Are they answering questions differently? This is kind of a measurable thing. And the role, again, of, of evaluating progress in any learning process should be self-evident. Pastor, can you imagine teaching kids that, and not testing proficiency? I mean, what, what would even be the point right I'm not sure that it would even be the point so so that's a part of the deal now uh, next slide please uh, another brick is knowledge framework now you have a handout and and we'll get over it in a second but everyone has an opinion and I'm okay with that you're gonna have one anyways you didn't ask my opinion to have didn't ask my permission everybody's got an opinion right uh, everybody's got one that what what too few have though is a comprehensive framework to support it Right. They have an opinion, but if you ask them to export that or to explain that or describe that in any meaningful terms, they would struggle with that. Right. And the default answer is generally what the Bible says. Right. And the Bible said isn't a framework. The Bible said is a claim. 
It's not a framework. And so please differentiate that, right, in your mind. An example uh, of a knowledge framework, uh, say, of a novice would be significantly different than an expert, right? Brother Kevin and I were talking about low voltage uh, uh, electricity. It was clear that neither one of us know. So neither one of us will be cracking the board open and fixing stuff, right? We just know. We're novices. We don't know. Right, that's not a shame. That's not condemning. That's just we don't know. Right? Another one would be the second grader's knowledge framework would be very different than the teacher's knowledge framework. Or at least we would like to think so. Right? We would like to think that the child's knowledge framework about money or, or God or going to church or making good decisions is different than their parents. That's why we don't let them decide some things. Right? So the knowledge framework is different. Right? Now your handout will uh, illustrates how you can build a reliable framework. Say nobody does this. Yes. Everybody who takes biblical studies wisely and, and seriously does this. This is what the preacher does as he's gathering and assembling. Thank you, Pastor. Uh, so there you have a comparison and synthesis of all the related passages, right? Oh, go back one, Pastor. I'm sorry. Go back to uh, one more. Let me see. There you go. Okay, so biblical theological framework, big word. Just uh, It's just a worksheet. <laughs> just call it a worksheet, right? And so if I'm using this, I pick a topic, God, uh, discipline, uh, moral education, nurturing faith, child development, church government. If I take any subject, right, sex, human sexuality, politics, money, whatever subject I'm looking at, that's my topic. That would be topic A, right? And then I would go down. What do I know? What did Jesus say about the topic? And then I would say, is there related information in the law of Moses about the topic? Right? And I would ask questions like, is there related information in the wisdom literature about the topic? So I'm building a framework, right? I'm trying to really, uh, what is praise? What is worship? What is whatever, right? I really am going through this. Is there, uh, what does the Old Testament say? What does the New Testament say? Did a Bible character speak directly about this? I would even ask myself, how did the first Christian, the first century Christians uh, understand this topic? How has that topic changed? Over the last 150 years, right? So before I ever told you, Sister Bib, what I think, right, if I'm a serious-minded preacher about anything, if my kids say something, my mom says, my wife's, anybody's asked me anything, if I don't have a framework, I'm going to tell you, well, my best guess, right? Because I don't want you, right, to believe what I say if what I say isn't reliable. Does that make sense? I don't want you. I don't want to give you opinion. I want to give you something that's 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 supported by a knowledge framework. And and this is a simple way. You could go way deep in the weeds if you like. And then uh, down at the bottom of your framework, there are just some uh, the handout. There's just some questions, some topics down there that we don't talk a lot of. I would encourage you to just pick one and then practice. Right, the worksheet is really for you to practice. Take one. How, what is a biblical response to poverty? We drive by a thousand homelessness. I think the last point in time uh, count for homelessness in, in Kern County was over ten thousand homeless people at any one point, any one time. What's a biblical response to that? Right, that's a subject. So get into the scripture. What did Jesus say about that? What did the law say about that? And that's so just a practice. That's just one example of how you practice. Next slide, please, Elder. Okay, so that was one brick. Another brick is uh, the two basic Bible studies. Let me elaborate on them some more. You have topical and then you have exegetical. Don't be anxious about the word. Not really a big word, just uh, a, an unfamiliar word, right? These are the two big rocks or the two big bricks for us today, right? 
this, this idea. Both of these are widely ex- is accepted. They can be really technical, but listen, if you have a hungry heart, God will feed you. If you have an honest, curious heart, if, you're, if you want to know, God will help you find it. Right? God will help you. Uh, and they, both of these are also in your learning packet for you. Next slide, please, Elder. Uh, topical biblical study or topical Bible study. Start with this one, please. Start with this one, please. Start with this one. Right? Always start with this one because it relies on a plain reading of the Bible. Right? You can just read the Bible. You don't have to get into language. You don't have to get into the, just read the Bible and read all of the biblical data points you can find. It's an extremely effective way to understand the major themes of the Bible. Now, bear in mind, right, bear in mind, the more data points you have, the more clarity you have, the, the, the more complete your framework is, right? Because if Jesus said something, how, what's the chances that it would not agree with the law of Moses, Right? It would absolutely agree with the law of Moses. So if I'm saying Jesus said something that Mo- the law of Moses would not say, well, then I'm misrepresenting Jesus. That's problematic, right? So, so I want as many biblical data points as I can get. I want as many and broadly throughout the scriptures as I can get, right? Uh, and it's pretty simple. Like, uh, I just ask, what did Jesus say about that? And I try to go in the, the scriptures and discover as many biblical uh, data points as I can, and I try to organize the data and fit it in the right places, right? Are there references uh, or pictures in what we call the primal story, which is Genesis 1 through 11, right? Is there information in the historical narrative of, of Israel and his descendants, right? Is there explicit or uh, indirect instructions in the epistles related to this topic, right? This is, this is a really, really... S- it's a great way, and you can do it with like a Bible concordance, blue letter Bible, uh, Thompson chain, Naves topical Bible. There's tools there do it for you. So this is a really great way, and then you can just use the worksheet. Brother Chris, nobody does that. Yes, they do. That's how we do it, right? That's how we do it. I spent like 16 years in school to learn why I'm teaching you in like five minutes. <laughs> okay, the next slide, please. The next one is exegetical studies. Now, now, this is really a critical examination of the Bible text to discover its first audience meaning, right? Uh, and this one is about diving into the first author and the first audience details. Now, this one can get complicated pretty quickly, and that's why I recommend, A, you start with the other one, and B, uh, <laughs> please, <laughs> slow down, phone a friend. Right. Most errors and heresies come from exegetical errors at this point. Some of the more common ones that we see, that we hear, is misunderstanding biblical languages. <laughs> that is so common. Right? It's so common. Be careful. Aramaic is like 10,000 years old. It's not English. It will never be English. Right? So remember, they're buckets. Remember us talking about buckets? The author did not put in that bucket what I put in that bucket. Right, another one is uh, trying to do things with the parables that the parable author and the parable uh, listener would not do with that parable, right? You do, we just try too hard to do some things with the text. Another one is reading ap- uh, like apocalyptic literature as prophetic literature. Those are not necessarily the same thing. The Jews really, really were apocalyptic in their view of things. They had this, God is going to strike down my enemies, and I'm going to take their babies and smash their heads against the rocks. That's apocalyptic literature. That's this description of this catastrophic response to God to the wickedness of sin. 
That didn't happen. It's just literature that is pregnant with the emotion the Jews felt towards God's deliverance. Now, to read that as some kind of prophecy, it's almost comical sometimes. So please be careful, right? Just be careful when you get into this, right? Like skills, exegetical can be taught. So please, uh, there's all kinds of books. The hermeneutical spiral is about that thick. It's massive. Just You don't have to get that one. But there's all kinds of skills that you can do. If you really want to dig into the first audience context, you can do that. Right? It's really possible to do, and it's incredibly, I mean, it's, it's mesmerizing. It works like a, an inverted pyramid. The process is really, actually, it's, it's, it's like science. It works every time, right? It's just an inverted pyramid. First, I look to understand the book. I want to understand the book, right? What is the book of Isaiah about? So that's biblical analysis, right? And there's all kinds of uh, helps for that. I just want to understand the book because I can't understand the chapter apart from understanding the book, right? Isaiah is not going to say something that is inconsistent with the message that God is trying to communicate through the book of Isaiah. Does that make sense? So I want to understand Isaiah it, before I get to Isaiah 61, right? And then I want to understand Isaiah 61 so I can understand Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Does that make sense? So it's like an inverted pyramid. I take all this data. I'm trying to wash it down, wash it down to understand the passage, right? And there's two considerations. There's historical consideration, and then there's grammar and rules and language. Uh, and these considerations always inform the bucket. Does that make sense? They always inform the bucket. Every word is like a bucket, right? And I put all these buckets together with content. And then when I unspill out the content and put all the content in order, then I understand the meaning of the author. And that's kind of what exegetical Bible study is about. I'm really wanting to understand the meaning of the author. The author's meaning, not my meaning, right? Not our meaning today, not a Pentecostal meaning, the author's meaning. And then that helps me. Now, uh, next slide, Elder, please. Uh, this is, uh, there's limits uh, and uh, uh, both real limits, right? The most common uh, limit of passage analysis is that it often lacks the whole Bible perspective, right? And I try to do something with the passage that the, nothing else in the Bible would support. Does that make sense? And so I get all into the passage, and I come up with all this insight, and I get all this stuff out of the passage, and then, and then I begin reading some other, pa you know, like, you know, the prophets or uh, the epistles, and all of a sudden it just doesn't jive, right? And so, so I need the whole Bible perspective to make sure to kind of check that what I'm doing with the passage makes sense. Is that, is that and then, and then conversely, there's a lot of nuance hidden and layered into the passage itself. And so I really do want to understand the passage because when I put a, do a lot of passage analysis, a lot of exegetical work, if I exegesis all of my data points, my topical data points, then I'm just adding lots and lots of layers to my biblical framework. Does that make sense? And so when Brother Clint asked me, Brother, you know, hey, Ron, what do you think about X, Y, Z? He can trust, right, that I've looked at uh, as much biblical data as I possibly could. And then I gave those passages a really, really critical look, right? And so when I say something, then that, that has some, some gravity. Bam, it lands in a certain way, right? 
So, so basically the short answer here is these are great best together. Right? These are great best together. Right? Pick your topic. Uh, read your topic. Pick your passage. Pick out the nouns. Some of these simple things to do is read the passage, get all the nouns out. And nouns are the subjects, right? That's, does that make sense? And then you take all those nouns into your concordance in your blue letter Bible and you just look at those and write your data points down. Right? And then you just plain read the text. And then go to your verbs. Read all your verbs. Right? And that's your data points. And then you can go and follow those verbs. And it's, it really does work that way. And it is, it, these are great. These are great. They work. It's like Novocaine. Give it time. It always works. Next slide, please. Now, uh, the next brick is learning and creating. Uh, let me introduce you to Dot, the process of Dot. This one is really uh, great. Right? Discovery, organization, and testing. Now, if you've noticed, I've said these words like at least a dozen times. So I'm trying to really layer this intentionally. Discovery, organization, and testing, right? Uh, and, and it's really helpful and practical. So, Sister Brooklyn, this is what you do. Anytime I ever say anything to you, if you ever ask me a serious question, this is what you do to keep me honest. You say, did you dot that? And I'm going to say, of course I did. And then you would naturally say, did you, though? Right? That's how that works. That's what it works. Did you dot that? Right? And listen, how many of you, whether you name it dot or not, if, you are, if you've been in church like five minutes, as soon as somebody starts thinking, as soon as somebody starts speaking, what do you automatically do? You check their attitude. You get a gut check on their attitude. Amen. Let's not hide from it. Let's not hide from it. Right? The first thing you do is you, what's the vibe check? Vibe check, bro. Right? This is the first thing you do. And then the next thing you do is what? You start applying exegetical thought to what they're saying. You begin comparing your framework with their framework. And within about five minutes, you will know and you will decide, either to, if nothing else, intuitive. Whether or not you are going to check out, grab your phone, Google something, and be respectful till it's over. Right? I don't want that for me. I don't want that for any of you. You've watched your kids. Your kids have come to you, mom, dad, and you've had, you, you went into this, ex, I mean, this incredible, elaborate conversation with them. And about 30 seconds in the conversation, shoot. Because they've heard it be heard before, they've heard it again, they're going to hear it again. So please, right, discovery, organization, testing, this is so important. And it's really super practical. Did you dot that? That's, that's what I ask myself. I, believe it or not, before I do anything in this pulpit or any pulpit, anywhere, I ask myself, did you dot that? And I ask myself, yes, I do ask myself, but did you, though? I ask myself. Now. First step in anything is discovery, right? And that's the beauty of God's creation. He made this thing incredibly elaborate so we'd never run out of things to discover. Now, please keep in mind, studying to prove my idea is very different than studying to discover the truth of God's word. Studying to prove myself right is not studying to know God. Different things. So just please keep that in mind. Organization is about keeping all the big rocks and all the related little rocks in the right jar. 
And you've seen that. I've tried to set that worksheet up so that you can do that, right? Did you dot it? Now, discovery and organization, that's pretty simple. So let me get to testing. Next slide, Elder, please. So testing really is the big rock today. This is the, the big brick, and this is like the cornerstone brick. This would be the cornerstone brick of everything Foundation uh, has attempted. Um, intuitively, at least, we know that reality is distinct from our beliefs about it. What I believe a marriage and what my marriage is, is always two different things. It just is. Right. Uh, it is what it is, regardless of how I think, I feel, or believe about it. See, when we know this. This is not shocking. It's only shocking to say it out loud. But everybody here intuitively knows that reality is not my beliefs about reality. So the only thing in question is whether or not my view of it is accurate and precise. And this is the great conflict between. This is the historic conflict. Believe me, we've kicked this one around a long time. Right, this one goes back to the Greeks and before the Greeks, the Mesopotamians, and before the Mesopotamians, the Sumerians. This has been going around a long, long time, right? The conflict is always, I think I feel I believe versus it is. Now, in case of biblical discussion, and I'm going to, just, I'm going to leave it here. I'm just going to kind of pause here. In the case of a biblical discussion, the first three are subjective, which means the person isn't even talking about the Bible. The person is talking about themselves, so if I say Acts 2.38 means, that's me talking about Acts 2.38. If I say I believe Acts 2.38 is, that's talking about me. My feelings, my thoughts, my beliefs about it. Right? And so testing is the obvious necessity under those circumstances. Right? I don't want, I love Jesus. Right, I you don't ever have to sing anything else in this church, Sister Moans, besides courses like that for me. Right, I don't need hype, I don't need noise, I don't need speed. I just need to tell Jesus I love Him. Right, and next to Him is, is Dina. Let's not be confused about that. I don't think anybody's confused. Right, I I never under any circumstances want to tell Dina something that would burn her hand. I don't want to do that. My boys, I don't ever want to mislead them. I don't want to give them a bad idea. They deserve more from me than I think I feel I believe. For me, at least, they deserve the most accurate and, and precise reflection of reality I can get. The question of what makes something true is so profoundly weighty. Because it is a question of authority. Now, let me explain. We must obey if something is proven to be consistent and coherent with the Bible. It's a matter of self-preservation. Right? It is just a matter of self-preservation. Right? It is like lunacy to disobey something that is clearly communicated in the Scripture. It always spells disaster. When, Pastor, does doing it my way ever work? Zero times. Right, I have so so whether or not it's true, whether or not that is accurate, is so weighty and it's so profound, because it's a matter of authority, right? And conversely, right, it, how how 
is it, is it foolish and really just kind of naive in some cases to hold something that can be falsified? If that is universally falsifiable, is it necessary? So it's so, this question of what makes something true, this testing question is so incredibly important, right? The most simple one, I'll just give you one. This, this is so simple. The first and most simple is the comprehension test, and it goes like this. How much do I remember about any given subject? That's number one. How much do I remember of any given subject? Do I even remember, right? And so that's a simple process. Like write down everything you know about God. How much do you remember? And, and differentiate stuff that has biblical support and just simple ideas that you have, right? That's a simple test. How much do I know? How much do I remember? The second measure is understanding. How much of what I know do I understand correctly? That's the second test, right? This is simple comprehension test. You do this every day. I bet it from TK all the way up, you do this every day. Every teacher in the room knows this is simple. What do they remember and what do they understand of what they remember? Because, because how effectively I can apply my knowledge is always determined by how much I understand of what I remember. So when Dina asked me about marriage, how much do I remember about biblical marriage from the Bible? When the kids ask me about money, when the kids ask me about sexuality, when the kids ask me about politics, when the kids ask me anything, says Christy, how much do I remember in that moment about anything the Bible has ever said about what they're asking me? That's test number one. Test number two is how much do I understand of what I remember? Did I, work, did I put the rocks in the right place, right? Did I put the small rocks with the big rocks, blah, blah, blah. Right, because, because, just a matter of time, everybody's going to know how much I remembered and understood. Because wisdom is always proven out by her children. It's what comes to fruition because of what I know and remember. Right? Why things happen, and this is where the heaviness comes from me. Right? I, I don't ever want to be a Debbie Downer, but this is... This is this is where the heaviness comes from me. Why things happen to people, why things happen in marriage, why things happen to kids, why things happen in church, that's not really a mystery anymore. That's not. There is no mystery to that, Citrones. Scriptures are clear. How come my children, how come the church isn't, how come Brother Krantz is, how come Sister Krantz doesn't, right? The only question is how was my understanding while I was making those choices and doing those things misinformed. And so the weightiness is there, the incredible weightiness. So this is my last slide. I don't think that works. I got to crack the code on that. So remember, I ended last week with urgency. Let me do that again this week, right? Let me, let me push towards urgency about this. And let me do so by unpacking one of the most dangerous human tendencies uh, to do so. Right? Nothing is more common than a self-interested, self-determined exercise of personal prerogative. 
It is so subconscious and so nefarious, it happens millions of times a day, and we don't even know. American culture has doubled down on this tendency. Here in the U.S., we have been conditioned to do what we want, when we want, how we want, and however we think best. That is life, liber life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness has turned into in total licentious, hedonistic, I'm going to do me. And we say, ah, them sinners are horrible. Stand by. Wait one. It is such a deeply subconscious tendency that powers arise from a complex set of beliefs we have about ourselves, not sinners. Right? It results in millions of strong-willed, self-determined, I'll do it myself. A.K.A. Listen, listen. A.K.A. I'm the leader. A.K.A. I'm the parent. A.K.A. I'm the boss. I'm in charge. I'm responsible. I'm the husband. Happens millions of times a day. And any serious, any serious attempt at aligning my attitude and my behavior and my actions and the way I handle my money and the way I do my family and the way I take care of my wife and my kids and the way I, whatever, it always comes back to this daily confrontation with my tendency to do what I want, how I want, how I see best. Right? Jeremiah offers us the most poignant word of caution in 10.23. Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own step. Lord, correct me, but with justice, not with your anger. God, I need to be corrected. I know I'm crazy. I know I need correction. Just don't do it with a beating, Lord. Please send somebody my way to help me divide right from wrong. Just please send somebody my way who can help me and teach me and learn me and school me up. I don't want, I'm tired of taking beatings, Pastor. I'm tired of taking beatings, church. I don't want to burn my hand doing the same willful thing I've done for 20 years. I just am tired of that. Why does this happen, Brother Krantz? We know. We know why it happened. Because when I could have went A, I went B. And I thought B was right. Since Brooklyn, I really did. I believed. I thought. I felt. I believed. It was the right thing to do. And then 2, 5, 10, the consequences over a lifetime are incalculably profound. Now, if it was just me, it would kind of be no big deal. Take your beating like a man. That's what I told my kids for years. I even told your daughter that the other day. She, moments. she was talking about something. I said, well, I'll take your beating like a man. <laughs> Haven't quite figured out how to, you know, interact with girls. <laughs> you, oh, sorry, Elder. You and me too. <laughs> right. So let me describe the consequences that come along with this tendency. Right. Uh. And these are unavoidable and can be horrifically extreme. And they're never more evident than within interdependent relationships. Parents either capacitate or disable. It's called proximity and dependency. They depend on you. They have to believe what you say or they have to do what you say. And their life is incomparably altered. My failure to take seriously my preacher role in my kid's life, my wife's life, anybody's life, 
right, inevitably backs them in a corner. And my failure costs them something. Sometimes things irretrievable. Who can afford their tendency toward, I feel, I think, I believe, to hurt others? No one can. No one can. Who's counting on you? Who needs you to show up with wisdom rather than cliché? What do your loved ones need out of you? What do they need out of us? What do our children need out of us when they are confused or scared or facing a major life decision? What do our spouses need out of us when they are battling depression or fatigue? What do our loved ones need out of us when they are in a prison of resentment or church hurt? When they are backing themselves in the corner and they're wounded and they're bruised? Everybody knows your actions and behavior are coming from a wounded state. They just need wise words. Carefully assembled by the master assembler. Okay. There's too much to accredit our ideas, our, our, our counsel to I think, I feel. They need words spoken in due seasons. Because understanding is the wellspring of life. They need words that are like apples of gold and pictures of silver. They need wisdom and instruction. They need us to speak excellent things. They don't need, a more, they don't need any more promises of a miracle. They need education and training and instruction. And that's your, and that's me. Let's stand. Dear friends, please give heed. Seek out and set in order many proverbs. Find acceptable words that ensure and ensure and ensure that at which is written is upright, even words of truth, because only the words of the wide are his golds and his nails fastened by the master of assembler. Lord, thank you for your blessings and grace. Please be with us today. Talk to our hearts, God, our minds, activate every fiber of our soul. To turn to you and learn of you. May I see things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are